Hello there, little masters, and welcome to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where every episode, the good stuff comes in pints. West to Hall, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West, the Aragorn to my AMR, Alan Sisto. Thank you, Sean. Folks, we have a confession to make. We're coming to you from the not-so-distant future, March of 2017, about a year or so after we started this podcast. Now, why would we travel back in time and invent a time machine in doing so to come back and talk to you, listeners of the first episode of the Prancing Pony podcast? <laughs> took, a, took a lot of work to build that time machine, too. You're not we, kidding. We, we, we wouldn't have done it except for a very good reason. And that reason <laughs> is to give you a, just a, a little director's commentary from the future, uh, really just to give you a chance to hear what we sound like now. Uh, both Alan and I have uh, gone back over that first episode a couple of times, and oh, yeah. we'll be the first to admit that it's a little rough. I think uh, the content was good. I think the mm-hmm. content's always mm-hmm. been there, but I think just the two of us. Mm, well, yeah, that's no. fair to say. <laughs> we'll just yeah. leave it there. Our, our mics were okay, but we hadn't really gotten our locations dialed in yet. I was still in my right. untreated office, and I think you were hiding in a an echo chamber somewhere. Um, <laughs> you know, I, Glass walls, a hot closet <laughs> with glass walls. <laughs> of course, I was still coming to grips with the software that we used to record and master the show, too. So there was all sorts of technical stuff. I mean, our production values just weren't as good as they are now. Um, But then there's the fact that you and I were still new to each other. I I don't think people know this. You and I had spoken on the phone maybe a half an hour total before we did our first episode. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, to podcasting in general. Yeah, it was just a whole new world for us, it was. and um, it was. and as you said, we you know we still didn't we still hadn't worked with each other enough to know um, mm-hmm. kind of just how how to to work together. And I think the one of the things we've gotten over the last year is just we just had a great chance to build up um, you know a good rapport with each yeah. other. And if by I, that I you that mean we can, can interrupt each other freely without reservation? <laughs> yeah, for sure, we do do that. <laughs> um, and I think we've interjected a lot more humor into the show over the last year, or at least digression. We do digress quite a bit. That's our new nickname. Oh. The digressors. We digress. Yeah. The digressors. Yeah. It's good. We're going we're gonna to get that on plaques that we're going to hang on our studios <laughs> and closets. Well, we digress. I, we do. And you know what? I think it still worked, though. That's the point. And yeah, definitely. We may not have been going for stuffy professorial early on, uh, but, you know, we definitely loosened things up since then. And, and it's worked. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we started, honestly, we didn't think we'd get more than a couple hundred listeners from some of the Facebook groups that we're a part of. But now That's each true. episode yeah. is heard by, I don't know, a couple thousand, 3,000 people from all around the world. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just been uh, much bigger than we ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been fantastic. We're, uh, we're very thankful about that. Very um, grateful. But I guess, the you know, the point of all this, uh, sort of taking a moment to uh, pat each other on the back. <laughs> good <laughs> job, Sean. Good job. Yeah. Very well done, Alan. <laughs> very good. If you think this first episode sounds a little bit rough, um, just stick with us. Uh, it, it doesn't take really that long for us to really hit our stride here. And uh, in just a few episodes, it's going to be a really fun podcast to listen to. I agree. And if you like it already, hang on. It gets even better. So step on into the Wayback Machine and listen to us as we record the very first episode of the Branson Pony Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait. Hello there, little masters. Welcome to the Prancing Pony. Now the podcast, not the inn, but the good stuff still comes in pints, I assure you. West Hall, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm joined by the man of the West, the Aragorn to my AMR, 
Alan Sisto. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. And welcome, listeners, to the first episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. We're looking forward to a long exploration of Tolkien's Middle-Earth Legendarium with you. Today, though, we're going to start with some foundational material. We'll talk about some bits and pieces of biographical stuff that Sean and I find fascinating. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to dive into the pool with an in-depth discussion of On Fairy Stories, Tolkien's seminal essay, very influential mm -hmm. essay, on the characteristics and purpose of fantasy literature. This is actually going to lead us nicely into a look at Mythopoeia, which is a short poem Tolkien wrote in 1931 as a response to his very good friend C.S. Lewis, another fantasy author, mm -hmm. who had said that myths were lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. Hmm. Can't wait to get to that one. But first, let's take a look in Barlaman's mailbag and see if we have any questions, comments, or feedback. <sighs> ah, well, it looks like old Butterbur has misplaced the mail again. Oh. But that's all right. I'm sure that by next episode, our extensive listening audience will have discovered that they can write to us at the Prancing Pony Podcast at gmail.com. That's the Prancing Pony Podcast at gmail.com and have their questions or comments featured in our next episode. You know, Alan, I'm sure Barley's probably just in the common room. I think some guy just fell off a table in there. <laughs> well, was he singing uh, The Cow Jumped Over the Moon? I think he was. Uh oh, we better watch out. Nobody sees him now. I don't know what happened to him. People will be talking that, talking about that for 99 days. <laughs> Indeed. But you know what? It's okay that we don't have any mail because I think now we can spend a little time asking each other questions and that will give the listeners a chance to get to know a little bit about us. Not a bad idea. A little risky. I don't know that I want people to get to know me, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> Let's start with an obvious question for you, Sean. What do you mean when you call yourself the real life Lord of the Mark? <laughs> okay. I, I'm actually glad that you asked me this because it's only a matter of time before somebody does. Uh, <laughs> would it be too cheesy to call it the elephant in the room? Oh, 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 thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, no, the short answer is actually. Is I have a mute button. Just you should know that you should yes, know sir. that. OK. Yes, sir. I understand. sir. <laughs> uh, it's ahead, actually what my last. No, that's fine. It's actually what my last name means. My last name is Marchese, which is an Italian well, of name. It's a, it's a feudal oh, title, which actually does literally mean Lord of the Mark. It's the same thing as a French marquis. Uh, basically, a mark or march is the English word for a border territory, which mm -hmm. is exactly the word Tolkien used when he was talking about the Ritter Mark of Rohan. Or the March of Maedros. Or the March of Maedros, for you Silmarillion readers. Uh, so, yeah, that's the story behind that. Wow, but that's I guess, cool. Yeah, thank I, I, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that, it's, let me tell you. It's like destiny. You had yeah, to be a Tolkien fan. You had to. You, re you really do. So, <laughs> that brings me to my first question, Alan. What does it mean, and why do I call you the man of the West? Oh, man, nothing so prosaic as, as, as beautiful as yours. This is just something very mundane. Uh, the fact of the matter is, you live in Austin, Texas. I live in Southern California. You can't get much further west than me unless you're living in Hawaii. So I'm the man of the West. I, yeah, see, that's the thing. It's just not exciting. But it's yeah. cool, because if I had to be something, a Numenorean is not a bad thing to be. It's not a bad thing to, to be at all. And you look really good for your age. Well, at 87, you know. You know? <laughs> well, let's start with uh, a question that Tolkien fans almost always want to know. This is something we talk about whenever we meet somebody that we discover that we have a similar love. What was your first experience with Tolkien's books? Uh, how old were you? How were you introduced to it? What did you come away with? That sort of thing. Well, I think I think I was about 15, maybe 16. This was uh, in the early 90s. So this is before Peter Jackson's movies came out and 
yeah, you can do the math and figure out how old I am. Uh, I had been a fantasy reader for a long time. I had been a, a Dungeons and Dragons player when I was a kid. I was into the sword and sorcery stuff. By my teenage years, I wasn't as into all that stuff, but I was into music. And I was reading a lot of books about bands that I liked. Mm -hmm. And I was reading one about a psychedelic band from the 60s. And there was a reference to... J.R.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit, oh, yeah. and The Lord of the Rings. And uh, I just, I'd heard the name before, but never picked it up before. And I, I just was reading. I was like, maybe it's something I should check out. So I did. Started with The Hobbit, then went on to Lord of the Rings immediately mm -hmm. after. And I think it was a few months later that I picked up The Silmarillion. I actually did pick up The Silmarillion wow. in high school. Which, Most and, folks and, wait a little longer to tackle that piece. And I... I made it all the way through, but I, I don't think I really understood it until about five years later. Oh, I don't know. It takes at least three or four readings to, to really yeah. understand it. But yeah, uh, good stuff. But, I, but yeah, but, but I think what I really liked about it was I just when I got to it, I just found this world that reawakened an interest I had had since I was a kid in mm -hmm. mythology, language, mm -hmm. and all that stuff that is what people love about Tolkien. And yeah. uh, I, I dove right in. Went on to Unfinished Tales and the Book of Lost Tales, and wow. uh, been there ever since. Yeah, that's a great stuff. I I didn't get onto those books until much later, but I think I started a little bit younger. I was, you know, now that I think about it, I think I might have been closer to ten or eleven. I, and you'll be able to do the math on this one too. Uh, the Rankin and Bass cartoon, uh, the animated version, was out, and I must have seen it on television. I don't remember exactly when or the circumstances of it, but I remember seeing it, and my mom got me a book. Uh, the, the 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 Hobbit, um, but it was the Rankin and Bass version, you know. So okay. you got the the animation, the animated um, pages, you know, the the artwork. Uh, so I read that probably. I'm going to guess I was 11 years old, might have been 12. It took me another two or three years before I eventually decided to read The Lord of the Rings. I don't know that I knew it existed right away. I think I just knew this was a one-off piece that was really intriguing. That I loved the storyline, but once I got into The Lord of the Rings, of course, it was all over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there of was like you, it sucks I found you in. It, it does. It just, I, I found yeah. the depth of it to be just intriguing and captivating. Though I have to admit, I don't think I tried tackling the Silmarillion until I was in college. So probably late eighties or so. Yeah, well, I know. You can do that. It sounds like you probably approached it the way the professor intended, with the Lord of the Rings coming out many years after the Hobbit. Mm -hmm. Well, and then the Silmarillion not even being released in his lifetime. So, <laughs> well, that's a good point. Uh, Good point. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, we, we love the books and it's clear that that was our, our first experience. And yeah, that's yep. a different thing from a lot of folks these days who first got to know uh, Tolkien's works through Peter Jackson's films. Mm -hmm. Some folks, <clears throat> they call us purists and they don't mean it as a compliment. <laughs> no, um, not at all. But the truth is, you know, no. we, we love the films. Uh, the first three films are, are spectacular for what they are. That is, they're Absolutely. films. They're not the books. Uh, and that's okay. What they've done is amazing uh, in so many ways. What do you? And they brought it to a lot of. Yeah. they brought it to a lot of people who weren't they familiar did. with it before. Yeah. Exactly, and and I'm grateful for that. There are folks in uh, in in that we associate with all the time who never would have read the books had they not seen the movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do you think that Peter Jackson and and crew, Fran Walsh, Philip Aboyans, the scriptwriters, what do you think they got most right in translating this story to film? You know, I think it's. Probably, I guess the probably the sense of depth to the story, hmm. um, the the fact that each race and nation in Middle Earth, for lack of a better word, really feels like a different 
you know, you know raised from the others. The, mm-hmm. the art direction and the casting and the costumes of the Shire look different from those of Rohan or of Gondor or Lothlorien. Um, mm. And this goes, you know, even to the music. And it, it just, it really feels like a world of different peoples. A full and world, that, right. Right, right. A fully exactly. realized world. It's, it is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? Um, you know, well, if I were going to cheat, I'd say the the best thing he got right was actually hiring Howard Shore to write the most amazing <laughs> score ever. Yeah. But that's really cheating because that part isn't, isn't purely film. Um, as can be attested by the fact that I listen to that score nearly constantly. But in terms of actually getting the story to film, I would say the the sets and the setting. That is yeah. uh, the John Howe and Alan Lee design. Every place, every location, every setting felt like it was almost exactly the way I imagined it to be when I read. Mm-hmm. I never felt like this jarring sense of, Ooh, that's not how I picture it. Boy, they got that wrong. Yeah, it was there yeah. of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a few moments of that, but it oh, was never well, about sure. the setting. <laughs> right. There's always there's so, always a few of those in yeah. adaptation. Yeah. So that would be that would be my answer to that one. Good one. Yeah, I like that. So I've got another one for you. Sure. Uh, if you were a member of a particular race or maybe even a particular character from mm-hmm. Tolkien's world, uh, who would you be and why? Oh my. Um, hmm. Well, if I just had to pick a race. I probably would be a hobbit. I, I love the peace and quiet of living in the Shire. I love that agrarian, slower-paced life. Mm-hmm. And I would love the idea of a well-stocked pantry with a lot of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and, and I'm not a smoker, so, but I think I would be perfectly happy to take up pipe smoking in that circumstance. Learn a few smoke ring tricks. Exactly. But if I was a single character, I have to tell you, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Faramir. I think he is he's the character that I most admire and that I would want to be. If I could. So what about you? He, uh, that's a really good one. Faramir, I, I think it's just that warrior scholar thing really resonates with, I think, a lot of fans. As much as uh, I'd like to give a really cool answer, I, I mean, I think for me, if I had to say who I who I most like, I probably would be a Gondorian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do love ancient history and studying the past and uh, thinking about the past. And, you know, obviously Gondor is, is very much about that to oh, a yeah. fault. Really, yeah, and and I, and I get true. that, but um, you know, I would probably not be anybody so cool as Faramir or Boromir. <laughs> or, or, I probably wouldn't even be Denethor. Well, I'd that's probably, probably a good thing. Well, that is true. Uh, do you remember the herb master at the Houses of Healing? I'd probably be him. You know, just like <laughs> rattling on about all the different names for the Athalas plant, but I have no idea what it's good for oh, or oh, how oh, to use oh. it. And you'd yeah. be schooled by Eowyn on the fact I would that, be, uh, yeah. That, that those without swords can still die upon them. That's right. That's <laughs> well, at least right. you wouldn't be running on and on place. like like Iareth. The, 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 perhaps you'd have to. Well, she's, let's just yeah. She just keeps on going. Boy, she she's sure is. That would have been a funny character to cast in the films, wouldn't it? I I, I kind of missed that. She that. Wasn't there. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's time for a lightning round. I know we need to get moving, so we'll uh, we'll do a quick lightning round here. We'll each respond, but keep them quick. No explanations, just answers. Lembus or Cram. Lembus. Lembus here as well. Elrond or Elros? Elrond. I'm going to go Elros on that one. Rohan or Gondor? Uh, Gondor by a little bit, but I would marry a woman from Rohan. Ooh, a sword maiden. Mm-hmm. I, I like that idea. I, yeah, it's a tough one. I, I There's something about the anglo saxon Okay, that's not lightning around. Uh, Gondor. Boromir <laughs> or Faramir? Oh, okay, I gave that one away. How, what Faramir, Faramir. Faramir. Faramir, no question. Agreed. Uh, Bree or Lake Town? Alan, what's yeah. the name of this podcast? <laughs> okay, I guess that was a pretty easy one. Bree. Bree. Yeah, no doubt about that. 
No doubt. Well, do we have anything else? Uh, well, actually, I think that that brings me nicely to the podcast. Do you see oh, what yeah. I did there? I did. I did. See, well, I heard what you did there. So, very good. So I think let's maybe take a moment to talk about how we connected and why we started this podcast. Good idea. So uh, you and I met through a Facebook group mm-hmm. called The Silmarillion slash, slash Children of Hurin slash, slash The Hobbit slash, slash The Lord of the Rings. Uh, kind of <laughs> a long name. name is too long. Yeah, it's it's a bit long. Great group, though. Uh, oh, we've tremendous group. Over four thousand members at this point. Um, fantastic group. And uh, by the way, big shout out to all of our friends in that group. Uh, you guys have been so supportive and so enthusiastic about Huge. this project. Uh, you guys are amazing. So oh, I'm thank sure you you'll so be much. our first listeners, though. I hope you won't be our last. <laughs> yes to both. <laughs> but what really happened with us was last year. The, the admins of that page started this thing they called book weeks. And oh, yes. they basically each week there was a book assigned. We started with The Hobbit, then mm-hmm. Fellowship, On Straight Through, Silmarillion, yep. Unfinished Tales. I think we got up to Tales from the Perilous Realm, yeah, which is going pretty deep. Yeah, we actually got to talk about own fairy stories. Yeah, we did. And uh, each week members were encouraged to read the book or reread the book. Uh, mm-hmm. share a favorite passage from it and what they liked about it. And there was no limit to how many times you could post. I apologize to everybody who read <laughs> my four posts for Silmarillion week. Well, I think that tied my return of the King week. So that's all right. Yeah, that's, that's true. That was a, a fun couple of weeks for us. It sure was. But, but that was where you and I really just mm-hmm. kind of started uh, trading ideas and yeah. just sort of feeling kind of a common uh, interest in sort of the, the deep dive as they say. Yeah. Yeah, well, especially uh, we both had that in, that attraction to the languages, uh, to the etymology, to mm-hmm. Tolkien's particular use of, of you know syntax. And I mean, I know we're getting pretty deep there already in the first episode, but <laughs> it just means that we had similar interests within our interest of Tolkien, and it just felt like right. you know it was a good connection. Of course, at that point, I had no idea that we would start a podcast, but uh, you know, things develop. Um, you know, and, and I'm and glad we're here. It's, it's I really am too. Cool. I can't wait. I think I'm really excited about doing this, and I think a lot of folks are are excited to listen, but. Uh, and so that's eventually, that's not only how we connected, it's how we eventually decided to do a podcast. We touched on it a little bit in our teaser just a couple of weeks ago, but that mutual passion for not only Tolkien, but for his languages, uh, the etymologies, all of that stuff, you know, w- that's what we share along with a, a kind of odd willingness to talk at great length about this stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, mythology, uh, the important themes that Tolkien talks about, like pride or uh, scientific progress. Cool oh, we can go, oh, we yeah. can go on and on. On us. and on and on and on. Eucatastrophe. We could talk for days on eucatastrophe. Um, and since we can talk faster than we can type, a podcast seemed to be the logical conclusion. It's, you, you nailed it. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I feel like we've maybe introduced ourselves enough. Oh, yeah, uh, maybe more than enough. <laughs> maybe more than enough. Let's talk about the professor. Uh, Certainly. I, I think we both agreed we wanted to start with a little discussion of some of our favorite moments from the Humphrey Carpenter biography. Uh, yeah. This is the book entitled J.R.R. Tolkien, A Biography. Mm-hmm. By the way, every one of the books that we talk about today and going forward in the podcast is going to be listed on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. We have an official library section on that website where you can find links to all of the books that we're going to be discussing, not only in this episode, but also we're, we also have links to recommended versions, recommended very inexpensive mm-hmm. versions of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion. Cheap paperbacks. So the, you can mark them up. Paper, exactly. That's the idea is 
read along with us, mark them up, highlight passages. If, if anything we say makes you think about something or if you think about something and you want to ask us about it, highlight it, mark mm-hmm. it up, put a flag on it, whatever. Definitely. So that's kind of what this is about. And that's what we want to encourage. Uh, mm-hmm. That's we want to open this discussion to uh, I- anyone listening to this. Agreed wholeheartedly. And, and just one little last technical note. The links, you know, we can only set up one set of links, and so our links are set to uh, the U.S. Amazon store. So if you're overseas, we apologize. Uh, you'll want to go ahead and purchase them through your local Amazon, uh, amazon.co.uk, or uh, I think it's .de for Germany, wherever you might happen to be. But uh, at least by following our links, you'll see which editions we're working through. So you'll be able to reference the same page numbers that we're working on. If I tell you, hey, you know, here at the second paragraph on page 112, you'll be able to follow along right, right there. So let's go ahead and dive into Carpenter's biography. Um, what was let's one of the, the first things that you, uh, you know, what was your first tidbit, your first little nugget of genius? I think my first favorite was there was a, a, a passage in, uh, it's part two, chapter three, the, ty- uh, the chapter entitled Private Lang and Edith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, uh, Tolkien is a teenager at this point. I think this is around 1905, 1906. There, there wasn't a date on the page, uh, but Tolkien is making up his first language, which he calls Nevbosch, uh, which is a mix of Latin and English and French, um, in other words. And Carpenter says it had no particular use, but if he had been interested in music, he would very likely have wanted to compose melodies. So why should he not make up a personal system of words that would be, as it were, a private symphony? Hmm. I I love this because... Well, not only is it Tolkien's first invention of a new language, mm-hmm. but just this idea of a symphony of words uh, is so that presages beautiful. a little something, doesn't it? I mean, we're it really does. I don't, the, I don't, I don't yeah. want any no spoilers. No spoilers. I think next in our next episode, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about the power of music. Yeah. Um, you know, Tolkien wasn't a musician; his wife no. was, uh, Edith mm-hmm. was, but yeah, quite music the piano is, player. Yes, right, exactly. But music is such a part of the world of Middle Earth. You know that there's poems throughout the books, but mm-hmm. most of them are actually songs intended to be sung. So they are. That was just a, a really neat moment for me. I what agree. about you? What's your um, first? You know, well, the first thing I, I came across was another kind of wordy thing. It was uh, well. Here's the, the quick passage. I'll I'll try to cut it short, but right out of the text. Nor was he content merely to read about dragons. When he was about seven, he began to compose his own story about a dragon. I remember nothing about it except a philological fact, he recalled. My mother said nothing about the dragon, but pointed out that one could not say a green great dragon, but had to say a great green dragon. I wondered why and still do. The fact that I remember this is possibly significant, as I do not think I ever tried to write a story again for many years and was taken up with language. <laughs> and, and I mean, here's a kid, he's probably, I think at that point, he was, he was significantly younger because his mother was still alive. So he must have been seven or eight years old, probably, at this point. And it, it, it impacted him so deeply that he decided, I better not write anything until I figure out how to work with words. It's, it's like that first understanding of the fact that language has rules. And maybe they don't make sense to a kid that young. No. But it's, it's like he spent the rest of his life chasing down those rules. Yeah. And it became his foundation. You know, it really yeah. did. I mean, the whole existence of the Lord of the Rings owes itself to Tolkien's fascination with language and the desire to create his own languages. Indeed. And actually, that's a lovely segue into my next passage. Well, then by all means, take it. So the uh, there's the discovery of the poem Christ 
by Kina Wolf. Mm-hmm. I think I'm saying that correctly. I think you are. If there's an, uh, an older Middle English scholar out there who wants to help us with pronunciations, by all means, please write to we, Bar- Barlaman's mailbag. Absolutely, please do <laughs> keep keep us uh, keep us accurate here. So, Christ was uh, an Old English or Anglo-Saxon. The terms are kind of interchangeable. Uh, cycle of religious poems, and Tolkien discovered these. I think it was around. Well, I'm getting to 1914. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when you discovered them, but there were two lines of this poem cycle that actually oh, really yes. stood out to Tolkien. I know where and you're going. I'm going to do something crazy, Alan. You're going to try I'm, to read Old English? I'm going to read Old English in Good our first that. episode. Wow, that's uh, brave. Apologies to those same Old English and Middle English scholars that we were just talking to. Warning, so, we will butcher this. Yes. Two lines stood out to Tolkien, and here's my attempt to say them. Eala erendel engla beortast, ofer midden yard monum sended. It translates to, Hail erendel, brightest of angels, above the middle earth sent unto men. Mm. Wow. Uh, and he read that in 1914, 1915? 1914, yeah. Unbelievable. And it's uh, it's likely a reference to either John the Baptist or Christ himself. I've seen yeah. both of those. Yeah. Uh, but Tolkien recognized it as actually the morning star, mm-hmm. which is the same thing as the evening star, the planet Venus. Right. And uh, this is where in 1914, he started writing a story called The Voyage of Eärendil, the Evening Star. Wow. Which yeah. became yeah, which became the story of Eärendil the Mariner, which you know, and some people listening to this know how much I love Eärendil. <laughs> um, well, I, now I can't wait to get to that chapter in the Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, so I know I'm, I'm going long here, but the oh, next part, so the next chapter of War um, in the Carpenter biography is where we, this really gets cool. Mm-hmm. So in 1915, Tolkien is going back to the A. Arendel story and he's rewriting it. And suddenly he decided, uh, this is Carpenter's words, he decided, excuse me, I'm sorry, sorry. The, uh, right. He suddenly decided that this crazy little fairy language that he had been working on, totally unrelated to his fictional subcreations, mm-hmm. um, he suddenly realized that this fairy language needed a history to support it. So as Carpenter says, <laughs> he needed people to speak it, basically. Yeah. So he decided this was the language spoken by the fairies or elves whom mm. Eärendil saw during his strange voyage. Oh, my. Boom. <laughs> and and that's the moment where creation of a universe begins. The yes, the mythic and the linguistic halves of his creation. Yeah, came that's together. Came together, beautiful. Man, that's you know, that's one of the things I loved about reading Carpenter's biography, and and this goes for other biographies too. I mean, uh, Shippey's author of the century. Um, there are uh, Garth's, uh, which is more focused solely on World War One. All of them are great, but the Carpenter biography covers so much. It starts from when he's, you know, a little kid. It starts from before he's born all the way to the end of his life. And so you get this really great overview. But I love these passages where you start to see the behind the scenes of the creation and of, of mm-hmm. why he desired to do this. It's inspiring. It doesn't change the reading. Favorites. Yeah, it doesn't change the reading. You know, it doesn't no. change the themes or anything, but it helps us just to see a little bit of the man behind the curtain, so to speak. Well, and Tolkien was big on that. You know, he didn't want us to get too bogged down in the no, biographical no, stuff. No, not at all. He didn't want us to read too much into that. But it yeah. is still fascinating for those of us who like uh, it is. the origins and, and just and just get inspired by this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and also we just have such a, an appreciation for Tolkien himself. And I think yeah. as people who have become – I don't want to use the word fans because that seems to kind of imply – well, the word is short for fanatic – 
Uh, you know, I prefer. <laughs> right, that's true. I prefer to say I'd, You're a I'm an admirer. Nerd, you know. You're a word nerd. <laughs> I am a word nerd. But you know, as an admirer of the professor, I I feel like it, it, it's it's helpful to me. It's valuable to me to learn a little bit about him. So, yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think the next passage for me was was actually something nowhere near as as highfalutin as your um, uh, word nerd stuff. But uh, this is a passage that actually ended up being recreated in uh, one of the letters. Uh, but at the time, the letters had not been uh, edited and put together. So here's. Um, I think it ended up being in letter 66, but here's what he says. Uh, and he's talking to his son, Christopher. He says, a new character has come on the scene. I'm sure I did not invent him. I did not even want him, though I like him. But there he came, walking into the woods of Athelion, Faramir, the brother of Boromir. And he's holding up the catastrophe by a lot of stuff about the history of Gondor and Rohan. If he goes on much more, a lot of him will have to be removed to the appendices, where already some fascinating material on the Hobbit tobacco industry and the languages of the West have gone. So I, I love how he doesn't even know, you know, he knows the broad scope. You know, he knows the, the general direction that the story's going. Certainly he already has in mind the U catastrophe. But little things like this, and this isn't even all that little, can come popping up into his story. Yeah. All of yeah. a sudden there's a new character and a whole new storyline. And and what a beautiful storyline it was. Oh, yeah. I don't well, even what? One of our favorites. One of our, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how many people, every time people talk about all oh, the, the various love stories in Tolkien, there's always somebody who mentions Faramir and Eowyn because really it's, I think, the best and the most relatable because they're both yeah, human. Exactly. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's just a tremendous little moment in there. And seeing well, how he recognizes that I have to keep things short and, oh, man, if he keeps talking, I'm going to have to put him into the appendices. Like right. that's some sort of literature purgatory. Like you know? a literature dungeon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love the, you know, I am sure I did not inv invent him. That's yes. so cool. And it it's just so true to the conceit that Tolkien uses in Lord of the Rings of having discovered this red book of Westmarch and mm -hmm. just translating it. He's, he's just a discoverer. Yeah. He's not creating it. And we're going to talk about that in on fairy stories, but uh, it's, that's just, um, he really did walk the walk. He did. And, and, you know, I, I, we probably are not quite to the point where we have to move on, but almost, but before we do, I wanted to just touch on a couple of things that I remember thinking about when I read that. Uh, in terms of Faramir and Tolkien, I know that there's a little bit of Tolkien in Faramir. And mm -hmm. I don't know whether this is intentional or not, but one of the things you read about in the Humphrey Carpenter book is that Tolkien had a recurring dream. And this recurring dream was of a wave that was right. unavoidable, that, that kept coming towards him. And he gave that exact dream to Faramir. Yep, that's right. And, you know, and then you look it's at such the other a cool things. Moment. Such oh, a cool moment. It really is. It's beautiful. And I know in the movies they gave that that line to Eowyn, which I mean, if you have to give it to somebody else, at least you give it to Eowyn. But sure, it's a beautiful line and it's a beautiful scene. It's some of the most um, evocative, you know, word, word work that Tolkien came up with in there. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the the Faramir thing. There are other things that you see in him, like Faramir's understanding that war is necessary, but his feeling that it is not a desirable thing, very much a Tolkien sense. You know, he very much, you know, far from a pacifist and people who claim that he was clearly have not studied him. Even though he wasn't a pacifist, he did not like war as an as a mean I mean sorry, as an end to itself. He knew it was a right. necessary evil. Um but certainly it was not something he appreciated or or even admired. Um well but, and certainly I would say that his experiences in World War One oh yeah. Well, while we we you know, let's not get too bogged down I know, in bi I don't biography. Know. Of course. But 
but, but when you lose certainly... every one of your friends, it's going to impact your life. <laughs> well, ex- exactly. And he, he, there's so much that, um, that I think is informed by mm-hmm. the atrocities and the, the horror oh. that he saw, you know, as basically technology really. Yeah. Technology uh, became a uh, massive killer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, I know. Uh, yeah. I know. It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, good stuff. Um, there, there are a few other little bits and pieces. I think Faramir's just general sense of honor is something that Tolkien himself valued, you know, and that, that he admired that in others, but also kind of saw that in himself and made Faramir almost this idealistic character, which, well, then that gets to like, oh, man, what do they do in the movies? But, hey, that's a topic for another time. Let's, uh, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's move, move on, on, as they I say. Um, I think, you know, let's go ahead and get into On Fairy Stories. Uh, for those of you who have not read On Fairy Stories, it is an essay uh, that he actually gave first as a talk, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right. And it really, it really uh, speaks to his understanding of what fantasy is. And you have to remember there really wasn't an established fantasy genre then like there is now. Fantasy genres then were really for little kids. They were fairy tales right. in that traditional sense, in the, um, you know, the, the well, br- the Brothers Grimm, but but also, you know, nursery room stories. So let's go ahead. What, um, well, well and even today, I would just say one more, you know, sort of word of introduction, which is even today, while fantasy is a huge moneymaker, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't really get a lot of respect in the quote oh, no. unquote serious literary world. No. And I think that on fairy stories is in part Tolkien's response to that attitude in his own time. And I think is still very relevant today. And, um, and, and I, I like the fact that it, it sort of breaks down the way I see it. I, I, I almost see it as in three parts, breaking down the, what the, how, and the why of fairy stories or, or what we would call fantasy. Mm-hmm. I agree. So he starts with a definition of what a fairy story is. And one of the things I really like here, he starts with, by saying that, Fairy stories are not, in normal English usage, stories about fairies or elves, but stories about fairy. That is, fairy, and he spells this with a capital F-A-E-R-I-E, with a little umlaut over the E. (laughs) Uh, Very specific. Um, That is, fairy, the realm or state in which fairies have their being. Uh, And one of the things I love about this is that he's actually preceded this passage by in classic classic philologist fashion, he's mm-hmm. uh, cited the Oxford English Dictionary, <laughs> which uh, huge dictionary. If if nobody's if anybody's you know seen it, it's a it's a huge multi volume dictionary that Tolkien actually worked on personally. Yeah, but but he mentions the fact that the first use of the word fairy was in reference to a place, not to a creature. Mm-hmm. There's a work by a medieval poet, I believe it was John Gower, who wrote about in some poem wrote about the, uh, sort of a, a lady killer dandy type guy as being as he were of fairy, which Tolkien of translates fairy, as right. of fairy. Exactly. And Tolkien translates that as, as if he were come from fairy. So it is a reference to a place, not to a cute little woodland creature that bounces from mushroom to mushroom in the forest. Right. Exactly. The, the, the cowslip, you know, reference that he gives about, how much he despised those little tiny fairies. Yeah. Um, you know, but th- that's what, that's what he had to deal with. That's what the genre was back then. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and he goes on to call fairy the perilous realm, which I love. Mm-hmm. And and I mentioned earlier the, the, the book, the tales from the perilous realm. Um, yep. <clears throat> fairy is a perilous realm. It's, it's not cute. No, nope. it's a dangerous place for mere mortals to tread. And, this is a concept that I think you see again and again 
in Middle Earth in the Legendarium. Yeah, I, I agree completely. But he does have a hard time to, uh, describing it. One of the things he talks about, he says, I will not attempt to define it in order mm. to describe it directly. It cannot be done. Uh, a fairy cannot be caught in a net of words because one of its qualities is to be indescribable, though mm -hmm. not imperceptible. Uh, and he talks about how it has many ingredients, and we'll get to some ideas about ingredients in a little bit, but yep. uh, ingredients, but analysis will not necessarily discover the secret of the whole. Mm. So, you know, that, and that's and that's key because, you know, we've talked about the biography stuff, and, and we can study that, and we can study his works, and we can analyze his works, and we can learn about fairy, but it can't be defined or described directly. It's always going to be, in some way at least, mysterious, but that's part of its quality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guess, and and go ahead, and you sorry. mentioned well, you mentioned the ingredients, and that kind of brings me to the next section. You know, sort of moving on to uh, the origins section of the sure. essay, where he talks about you know sort of the origins of fairy stories. And one of the things that I think has been really resonant resonant with me is his uh, his, his soup metaphor, which uh, I know is yes. not it's not actually his originally. He appropriated it from another critic, but. He talks about the tendency by some readers, uh, and especially people like us who like to really do a close reading of these works, mm -hmm. and I've certainly fallen in this trap, of getting bogged down in the sources and yeah. finding references wherever you can. So reading the Silmarillion and saying, oh, well, Turin Turambar is just like Sigurd the Volsung, <laughs> um, or you know, he's like Kulervo, the, the Finnish uh, anti-hero, I right. guess, which, right, which I would never have picked up on that. I would never have heard of Kulervo if it wasn't for Tolkien. But, no, certainly not. <laughs> but, or, you know, Ulmo, the Lord of the Waters oh, yeah. is like Poseidon. Or exactly. Gandalf is like Merlin or whatever you could come up with. Yeah. Yeah. And when you start going that route, you start replacing characters in your mind right. with characters that you already have established. And right. that's, a, that's a trap to avoid. You really have to be careful with that. And, you know, you go down that road and that road eventually leads to, uh, to allegory as well, which, you know, Professor Tolkien has had several comments about how he mm, feels yes. regarding allegory. <laughs> Quite Quite strongly. Well, and I think what's, what's so important about that is uh, that Tolkien says that it is precisely the differences, not the similarities, that make a work worth reading. Mm -hmm. uh, he says it is precisely the coloring, the atmosphere, the unclassifiable individual details of a story. Um, that's the stuff that is really worth reading in these things. And um, that's what that's what makes these stories uh, that's yeah, what gives them life. Yeah. Exactly. That's that exactly. three-dimensionality that we get. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that stuff. I mean, the, the, the thing about the soup, that I'm looking at the quote right now. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he says, we must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been boiled. Mm -hmm. um, and Tolkien That's... goes on to explain what he means by that. He says, by the soup, I mean the story as it is served up by its author or teller. And by the bones, its sources are material, even when those can be discovered with certainty. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he goes on to say, I, I don't, of course, forbid criticism of the soup as soup. And that's the point. We can get into and analyze and, and criticize, not in a negative sense, but criticize in a scholarly sense, uh, the soup, that is Tolkien's works, as, as, a, as a story, as a tale, as yeah. a creation. But when we start breaking it down uh, into the bones of the ox out of which it was made, uh, then, then we're <laughs> so, rather losing the point. It's a lovely point. image, by the way. It, it is. I, I, I try Very not appetizing. To, yeah. Isn't that kind of the point, though? It, really, it is. Yeah. I, we don't want to, to know. <laughs> it makes me think, actually, of something that, uh, and, and our international listeners may not get this, but it's American political season right now. 
And the, we talk about politics and we talk about how we don't want to know how the sausages are made. And it's, right. it's a, right. the, the legislative process. Um, it, it's the same thing. We don't want to know how the sausages are made. We don't want exactly. to know how the soup is made. Uh, we just want the end results. And in this case, obviously, the end results are far, far better than what we get out of politicians. Very, very much so. But um, Well, and, and there's one other thing that I like about this pot metaphor, mm -hmm. which he, he really carries it through to the hilt. He does. He, he goes right at length with this, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And going so far as to say that the artist is the cook who ladles it out mm -hmm. um, and that the artist's art in selecting which elements to ladle out is important. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it, it's it's that um, the importance of the finished product and the artist's skill in choosing which of those elements to, to ladle out into your bowl. And this actually right after this, he gives one of my favorite passages in the entire essay. I think probably my second favorite where he says that small wonder that mm -hmm. spell means both the means both a story told and a formula of power over living men. Hmm. It's an amazing quote. And it really is, isn't it? Especially yeah, as you ponder it even a second time. Right. It's, I mean, he's saying that the artist, the, the story maker is a kind of what, what, what we would call a magician basically. Right. Yeah. But although Tolkien doesn't use that word, he has a, well, no, he, he invents a new word for it. He has to, he invents several words in this. Yes, uh, he it, does. And we, we even get to see why he thinks the original words are deficient to explain right. things. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and indeed, the, the decision from the artist to ladle a particular portion out of the soup is a reminder to us that there is still more in the soup, that right. we get the flavor of it, but maybe we're not actually having it in our bowl. Mm -hmm. And and I guess in a way, that's why I like <laughs> – this is where it ends up being the bones of the ox. And and that's one of the reasons why I like you know going back into something like History of Middle Earth or uh, Unfinished Tales because I feel like I can take my own – soup spoon and dig in when the, uh, when, yeah. when the chef's not looking and yeah. get some of those it's, little nuggets that I want. All the bones are laid out for you in the history of Middle Earth. That's what makes it <laughs> so cool for some of us and uh, tedious maybe, for others. Maybe not so cool for others. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Um, so is this the place where he uses the word for the first time? And this is what I was alluding to, that the new name he creates up, the word sub-creator. You know, it is actually, uh, it, which brings me to the passage I was looking at next, which is, uh, it starts with the incarnate mind, the tongue, and the tale, or the story, are in yeah. our world co-evolve, co-equal uh, co co uh, in in terms of time. Uh, that just means that they have the same age or date of origin. Uh, that means that they all came into being at the same time. The mind, mm -hmm. which can abstract things, uh, the tongue that, that creates the language, and then the story itself uh, all came into being uh, at the same time. He talks about these incantations, right? the, the, when you talk about spell, um, the, the, so here's the actual line he says, but how powerful, how stimulating to the very faculty that produced it was the invention of the adjective. No <laughs> spell or incantation in fairy is more potent. And that's not surprising. Such incantations might indeed be said to be only another view of adjectives, a part of speech in a mythical grammar. And here's what he goes on to say. I love this. The mind that thought of light, heavy, gray, yellow, still swift, also conceived of magic that would make heavy things light and able to fly, turn gray lead into yellow gold and the still rock into swift water. If you could do the one, it could do the other, meaning if you could use the adjectives to describe the thing, then you could also think of this idea that it could do something different. Um, and so because it could, it inevitably did both. When we take green from grass or blue from heaven, we already have an enchanter's power, he says. Um, 
He says, we may put a deadly green upon a man's face and produce a horror. We may make the rare and terrible blue moon to shine, or we may cause woods to spring with silver leaves uh, and rams to wear fleeces of gold and put hot fire into the belly of the cold worm. But in such fantasy as it is called, new form is made. Fairy begins, man becomes a subcreator. There it is. And it's all about the adjectives. It's all it about is. describing, creating a story. Uh, it's all about being able to imagine. And he talks so much at length about imagination. Um, well, and that, that remind you know, the adjectives, that reminds me of uh, the, the, the moment that I was just talking about, which is the coloring, the atmosphere, the unclassifiable details of a story that actually give it life. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, it really is. Um, he talks about it being our right to subcreate. We, we'll get to that a little bit later in Mythopoeia. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the concept is that we make still by the law in which we're made. And that is that we, we can't help being subcreators uh, because we're created beings. Um, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, yes. <laughs> uh, so, so let's, yeah, go let, ahead. Well, yeah, we can, we can pedal back a little bit. Actually, I think, uh, I mean, this sort of brings us up to what the, the next section of the That's essay, what, which yeah, is the children, children mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Children. Uh, this is, is a, a natural place to go. I mean, you know, I think that sure. most people see fantasy as being uh, most relevant is, is with children, but sure. Uh, but, but I love this, that the professor says that the taste for fantasy increases with age if it is innate. Mm. those of us who are predisposed to love this stuff. Oh yeah. We love it more. We, we're just going to love it more. The older we get, uh, he says, I think s- somewhere later on in this same section, he talks about how adults put more into it and so get more out of it. And, uh, that is sort of, sort of, I see that as, uh, an excellent answer to <laughs> the, uh, fantasy is for kids argument that you sometimes hear. Yeah, I know. I don't get that. Because the more you, like he and he does say that, he says specifically, if fairy story is a kind, is worth reading at all, it is worthy to be written for and read by adults. They will, of course, put more in and get more out than children can. So you know, that's the point. You know, I certainly get more out of the Silmarillion now than I did when I first read it. Uh, and it's because of my age and wisdom and understanding and experiences. That brings something to the table that uh, a, a teenager doesn't have. And I don't mean that as an insult Absolutely. to teenagers. Um, I was not one. at all. I, <laughs> I, I read the Silmarillion as a teenager. Yeah. And as I, as I said a little while ago, I got so much more out of it, not only after repeated readings, but just approaching it older and mm-hmm. to the point where I've actually read the Silmarillion, I think three times in the last 13 months. And it just, I, keep finding new things each time it's rich it's absolutely yeah. rich and i can't wait till we actually get to start reading it next week i think yeah. this is important i think what we're doing is is key and i i hope that you know listeners if you're still out there uh that we don't lose you even though we're kind of talking about some abstract mm-hmm. concepts and we're we're diving into deep stuff that folks may not have have ever read um but i i do hope that you'll listen to this and then you know start next week you'll read the first chapter of the silmarillion and start with us on this big long walkthrough i can't wait well, and, and, and this is good stuff that I think uh, it, it informs mm-hmm. uh, oh, it really does. Of, of the rest of the Silmarillion, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings. So. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And you may not know that now, but trust me, just trust me. We've done this <laughs> enough that I, can, that I can say with certainty that if you pay attention to this stuff and you read on fairy stories and you talk about it with us and you read Mythopoeia and you listen to us talking about it, you're going to get some things in the Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings and even in the Hobbit that you would not have noticed before. Uh, it'll make your experience a richer one. So stick with us. 
Um, yeah, the, the children's section is awesome, partly because it brings into um, brings into discussion the concept of secondary belief. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I want to start by talking about what secondary belief is a reaction to. And I won't spend too much time on this, but there's a phrase that I think a lot of people, certainly in American schools, uh, learn in English class called willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an idea that's been around for a long time. I believe it was the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge who came up with it. But it's the idea that in order to appreciate and get into a story that we know is not true, anything fictional, mm-hmm. uh, that we have to willingly suspend our disbelief and say, yeah, I know this isn't true, but I- I'm going to go ahead and pretend to believe it anyway. Uh, Tolkien rejects this notion and yeah. says that we are not suspending disbelief. He actually says, the moment disbelief arises, the spell is broken. The magic, or rather art, has failed. And so he goes on to say that we we get distracted. We start to uh, make excuses for why the work isn't isn't working for us or, you know, we start criticizing it. We, or we, if we're feeling really generous, we try to find what virtue we can in the work of an art that has for us failed. Failed, failed art, failed, failed art. And yeah. And so Tolkien really sees this as a a fundamental failure of, of subcreation of art. And so Tolkien says instead that we are not willingly suspending disbelief. We are engaging in secondary belief. Hmm. It's an it's an active decision to believe in a secondary world, which your mind can enter. Those are the professor's words. Yeah. And inside that world, what you read is true to the laws of that world. Right. Um, he it's, says it's that internally oh, consistent. Yeah, exactly. Internal consistency. And he says that fairy stories were plainly not primarily concerned with possibility, but with desirability. Mm, if they mm-hmm. awaken desire satisfying it while often wetting it unbearably they succeeded well then by that token certainly his uh, by, by that measure certainly his works have succeeded because absolutely everybody who's read them wants more you see it all the time people ask questions about the the blue wizards or you know other things where tolkien only gave us a little tiny glimpse yeah, yeah. and they want more because they're hungry it's awakened yeah. desire uh, maybe satisfying it a little bit, but mostly wetting it unbearably. <laughs> Un- unbearably indeed. And and how many times have you seen people, I mean, we see this on, on some of our Facebook groups all the time, people posting, you know, oh, I wish I could live in the Shire. I wish yeah. I could live. We even asked each other, where would you live? Where would you be from? Would you be from Gondor? Uh, it's, it, there is a, there's something very desirable about it. It's not that we all want to strap on chainmail and go march against no. Sauron's orcs, but no. But there's something desirable about that world. We we desire more of it, and we desire and it's some aspect of, of it to be true. It's because right. of that reality that he he talks about with secondary belief, uh, exactly. and the fact that your mind can can enter into it, and it's internally consistent. It's mm-hmm. real. So yeah. much fantasy that you read, you know, modern popular fantasy, lacks that depth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the way I describe it is it's a mile wide, but it's an inch deep. You, yeah, you, know, you scratch the surface. And there's nothing there. Names are yeah. just made up names because they sound pretty, not because they have a linguistic consistency to them. Uh, we'll see that as we start getting into the Silmarillion, that you can start to figure out what place names mean because of the just elements in the, the word. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because you'll know the roots from Tolkien's explanation of, of other words. Right. And you'll start to realize, you know, when you read Dor Loman, and then you look at a place like Gondor and you realize they both have doors. 
Mm-hmm. Well, what that means. Right. And we'll get to that later. Again, I'm ahead of myself. <laughs> it means land, people. It does. It means, it means well, land. realm or kingdom or realm. land. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was another line right in that same section that I really liked. He talks about um, – well, let's see, I'm trying to put this into context here, but the, the line that I'm looking at specifically starts with, I never imagined that the dragon was of the same order as the horse. And that wasn't solely because I saw horses daily, but never even the footprint of a worm. The dragon had the trademark of fairy written plain upon him. So, you know, he looks at, at the concept of a dragon and he knows it's otherworldly. It's someplace else. It's fantasy. It is fairy. And in that world was the heart of the desire of fairy. He he wanted dragons. He didn't want them in reality. He didn't want them right, in his right. neighborhood. Uh, and he even says that. He, he, he knew the peril, I believe he says, right. right? Yeah, he says specifically, of course, I and my timid body did not wish to have them in, in the neighborhood, intruding into my relatively safe world, uh, in which it was, for instance, possible to read stories in peace of mind, free from fear. But, he says, the world that contained even the imagination of Fafnir was richer. And that's a, mm-hmm. a dragon of mythological history. Norse mythology. Yeah. The world that contained even the imagination of this dragon was richer and more beautiful at whatever cost of peril. Mm -hmm. And and that's because there's a secondary belief that you can enter into. Um, But yeah, this notion that you have to set aside disbelief when you start reading somebody like Tolkien. uh, Well, it's, it's just, it's false. I mean, there's no simpler way to put it. Well, Uh, and frankly, I think there's a certain tendency for people to ask questions about Lord of the Rings, like, well, why can't the eagles just fly over Mount Doom and drop away <laughs> in the volcano? Or oh, Gandalf's a wizard. Why? Yeah. Or Gandalf's a wizard. Why doesn't he just cast a spell to make them invisible of or course. teleport them to Mordor? Because that's not how wizards well, we work played, in that world. We, we played D and D. He didn't prepare that spell this morning. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, sir. Very good. Uh, but but that's not how wizards work in Tolkien's mm-hmm. world. That's not yeah. what eagles do in no. Tolkien's world. Uh, no. And to a certain extent, if they did, there wouldn't be a story. No, uh, there would there would be no story worth telling because it would Certainly just be not. like an Elrond gave the ring to Gwyhir and Gwyhir dropped it in the volcano, <laughs> and a miracle would, was done, and we're done. Goodbye. There wouldn't be the twelve hundred, however many pages it is, no, for you to read. And even though there is still that that you catastrophe, and boy, we're going to get to that soon. But even though there is that that moment of the eagles, and they're always hint, eagles are always a catastrophe. Um, th- whenever the eagles show up, you know, yeah, they're they're kind of a Deus ex machina, but they're not. Mm-hmm. They're, they're they're consistent within the world, especially right. if you end up reading the Silmarillion. For people who have read just the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, or maybe who have never read them and only have seen the films, the eagles. They don't get them. They don't understand their origins. Right. They don't understand their purpose. Their purpose. But when you read serve. the Silmarillion, right. you will. Right. Exactly. Uh, and that fills in a lot. But yeah, certainly. And that's, again, just an element of secondary belief rather than suspension of disbelief. Absolutely. Um, and that's yep. just absolutely crucial for, for, for good fantasy. And that really does tie in, actually, in the, in the section labeled fantasy, which is just right after that section. We talk about the inner consistency of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just another kind of way of expressing this, this concept. Um, the see. the rules of the world. I sometimes hear people even talking about other, you know, oh yeah, whether it's comic books or Star Wars or anything. People sometimes talk about the rules of the world, and yeah, um, it's really just the same thing. A good world has rules and has rules that are consistent, and it, you may not even know all of them, but right. if the the author has to know them, you know, you exactly. you may not have to know that door means land. You may eventually discover that, but 
if Tolkien didn't know that, then the lands would have been named differently and would not have that inner consistency of reality. Right. It um, would not feel real. No, no. And it would be harder to engage that secondary belief. And he calls that, um, well, see, he says the achievement of that expression, which gives the inner consistency of reality, is indeed another thing. And so it needs another name. He's a word guy, so it needs another mm -hmm. name. Uh, art, the operative link between imagination and the final result, subcreation. So that's when we're talking about failed art. That's between the imagination of the author and the subcreation, which is, if we want to go back even further, the soup that is ladled into our bowl. Exactly. Uh, art is the thing between that the author or filmmaker or whatever artist is, you know, a painter, or a musician. That's mm -hmm. the operative link between the imagination, the thing that that artist has imagined, and the actual creation of it or subcreation. Yeah, um, it's it's. I, I think I mentioned earlier my second passage in uh, my second favorite passage in the essay. That one that you just mentioned is my oh, favorite. I'm sorry, I took and, it from you. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. It's. Uh, I'm sure it's one of your favorites too. So it's. <laughs> it's just. It's one of the best. It really is. Um, but I, I think you know. You, you see, like like you said, the link. Um, the way I like to think of this is, uh, the artist is the link between fairy, which is the let's call it the source of imagination, and the reader, who is the receiver of the subcreation. Hmm. And if we think of it that way, and I'm I'm going to go off on my own little uh, my own little interpretation here, sure. Uh, but I don't I don't think I'm too far off. But if we think of it that way, then you can actually see the artist as sort of a messenger from fairy, bringing glimpses of fairy mm -hmm. back to the mortal world for us to see, because it's too perilous for us to tread there themselves, or tread there ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that you know, we we rely on the artist to bring us little glimpses of fairy. And, and this is very much, I think, in keeping with the idea of Tolkien being the translator of the Red Book of Westmarch right. that we a talked about earlier. Not a not a creator. Not sense, a creator, yeah. right. Um, the idea of a messenger to and from fairy also comes up in the Silmarillion. Yeah. No spoilers. Well, and it comes up in uh, Tales from the Perilous Realm. And, um, it does. In my favorite story in that book, uh, Smith of Wooden Major. Smith of Major. Yeah. yeah. That's actually my favorite of his lesser known works. And uh, it's it's because of this concept. This mm -hmm. is very explicit, I would say, in that work, the message to so. from fairy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very clear. And if you haven't read it, folks, you should. I don't know if we'll ever get to that since uh, this podcast is designed, designed to go chapter through chapter. <laughs> and we're starting with the Silmarillion and then going to Hobbit and then going to Lord of the Rings. And then probably Unfinished Tales. That We, we might be in our 70s by the time you, we're done. You will really be 87 so, by the time we get to Smith and, and Farmer. Sean, Giles have you and... read Unfinished Tales this week? We need to talk <laughs> right. about it on the podcast. Right. Yeah, that, that could be funny. Um, who knows? Maybe our, our kids will carry it on in 30 years. <laughs> okay. Now it's turning into a fantasy of its own. Um, Indeed. No, I, and he's he's talked about um, this secondary belief, and I, I'm kind of coming back to that, and I'm sorry about that, because I really like what you had to say about the fairy and the messenger, um, and I don't really have anything else to add to it. I just think that's an awesome little insight. Um, but I want to get – I, I love this idea of secondary belief, and he talks so much more about that in this section about fantasy. Um, so he talks about how it's easier to create uh, an inner consistency of reality with, with what he calls more sober material uh, because it's, a, it's more like the primary world. So fantasy is actually harder. He, um, he says actually very specifically that it is – let's see, how does he put this? Fantasy is all, has also an essential drawback. It is difficult to achieve. 
fantasy because of that is is often undeveloped and it's not as he says it's used only half seriously or merely for decoration uh and he quotes this he says anyone inheriting the fantastic device of human language can say the green sun many can then imagine or picture it but that is not enough though it may already be a more potent thing than a thumbnail sketch or transcript of life that receives literary praise but he talks about to make a secondary world inside which the green sun will be credible commanding secondary belief would require labor and thought and demand a special skill, a kind of elvish craft, and few attempt these difficult tasks. But when they're attempted and in any degree accomplished, then we have a rare achievement of art, narrative art, story-making in its primary and most potent mode. I love that. It's, it is. It's amazing. It's beautiful. I, I, I almost didn't want to go on because he goes on to then say, <laughs> uh, and there really should be only stuck in writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's one that could get us into a little bit of trouble. It could. And, you know, it, it's a tough one because, like you said, we really do love the movies, um, mm-hmm. but we, we recognize them for something – we recognize them for what they are, which is something different. They're not a book. Uh, right. They are not actually telling the same story. They're telling a slightly different story because they have to tell a slightly different story. Well, and I think, you know, without getting too much into, into Tolkien's views on, you know, drama versus literature, I think mm-hmm. – you know, one of the things that that is inescapable is um, it's it's the visual mode. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you you see Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. That's who you see. Uh, it is just it's a different skill as a reader, as a viewer, than creating a picture of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, in your head exactly. from the words that the author uses to describe him. And so that's kind of the the part that I really take away from. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of Tolkien's comments on yeah on uh, that you know the the visual arts. Well, what he's saying essentially is by making it a visual thing, by turning it into drama, you're adding a degree of difficulty that right. becomes impossible to achieve. Makes it that much harder. And- he even says, and I love this line just because it it reveals some of Tolkien's amazing wit. Uh, as it was, though done with some ingenuity of lighting, he was talking about a play that he saw. Disbelief had not so much to be suspended as hung, drawn, and quartered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that one. And, and I like to think that you know he wouldn't quite feel quite that strongly about uh, about Peter Jackson's films, but you know, given his son's thoughts on it, which are, are pretty well known, I, I I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not overly optimistic. But you know, it, it is a harder thing to do. If it's hard to do it in words, making it visual as well makes it even harder, virtually impossible. Yeah. Um, and that's, and and I that's think, tough. And that's, I think, really his point is just the, you know, he doesn't say that it can, that drama can never succeed no. as a conveyance of fantasy. He just no, says that not. it's just, it's that much more difficult. It, because, it's almost, he doesn't use the phrase, but it's almost <clears throat> like having to create tertiary belief. If, yeah. if secondary belief is the literature, if secondary belief is the printed words that we're reading and we're able to enter that state in our minds, the filmmaker has to turn it into a tertiary belief, a third mm-hmm. belief. Right that if it fails, takes us all the way back out. <laughs> it's right. It's really, and there's when that too happens, many layers. there's, there's too many layers, you yeah. know, for, for Tolkien's yeah. purposes here. And that doesn't mean that the films still can't be enjoyable. No, I mean, absolutely we've not. talked about that, you know, they're, fan- I mean, they're great. They're, yeah. they're great films. We love those films. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I watch those. I, well, now I have two little kids, so I don't watch them as often as I used to. I'm with you. I love to watch them regularly. And, you know, I, I watch little bits and pieces whenever I can. 
Um, they're kind of in heavy rotation, as you will, on my Apple TV. They're always on, on TV. My Apple TV. Cable, yeah. Well, yeah, oh, TNT oh, we shows them. Too, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. TNT takes the non-extended edition and makes it longer than the extended edition with the addition of commercials. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I just have Apple TV and I have my, my um, uh, files all ready to go. And I just, <laughs> they're my favorites and boom, there we go. That's very smart. Um, it took forever to get that all set up, but yeah. So yeah, um, that interconsistency of reality, the high bar and deficiency of drama. I mean, I don't want to, again, I'm not beating up the films. For those of you who love the films as much as the, the books, or some of you maybe even more, you know, again, Sean and I love the movies. So disclaimer, yep. we love the movies, but right. it is harder. And uh, I think Tolkien explains why that is. And so for those of you who are dealing with folks who are purists, um, you know, let's not use that as a derogatory term. Uh, remember that they're having to view this and actually willingly suspend disbelief, which is not right. what Tolkien would want people to have to do when entering into the secondary world. Very well said. <laughs> well, thank you. So, <laughs> so I think uh, this brings us to the point where probably getting a little bit ahead of ourselves again, but he actually, I think, ends this section with a quotation from his own poem, uh, Mythopoeia, yeah. which we're going to get into in a moment. Uh, yes, he does. Don't need to really get into it too much, but uh, just wanted to mention that these two these two works that we're discussing today are really very closely tied together. They are, and and you know so much so that he he quotes himself in each one. <laughs> each one quotes the other. So, um, but then I think uh, from there we get to uh, the part of the essay which is called uh, "Recovery, Escape, and Consolation." Mm -hmm. And this is where Tolkien talks about what I like to consider sort of the why. You know, we've talked about what is it, what is fantasy. We've talked about how is fantasy achieved, and now we're talking about why it's important. And I think the first thing that he says that really hits me is uh, the idea of recovery of childish wonder. Um, mm. and, and, and I think that's actually my own words for it. But uh, Tolkien's words for it are the regaining of a clear view. Yeah. Um, I believe he uses the image of cleaning the windows Yes, um, and seeing things as we are or were meant to see them as things apart for them from ourselves. Yeah. And he says I, so that the things seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity yes, from possessiveness. Yes. yes. That's, oh, that's really nice. And he really talks about that because, you know, and it's funny because it totally makes me think of dragons and the dragon hordes Ooh, um, because yeah. he talks about this, this triteness of familiarity is the penalty of what he calls appropriation. Things that are familiar, overly familiar, are the things that we think we've taken ownership of. Mm. We say we know them, they've become, and here's his words, they've become like the things which once attracted us by their glitter or their color or their shape, and we laid hands on them and then locked them in our hoard, acquired them, and acquiring, ceased to look at them. Mm. And how many of us have done that? Have, yeah. have bought some really cool thing that we wanted, we, oh, I must have, must have, put it on my shelf, and never look at it again. Yeah. I've got it. That's all I need. I just, I just have to have it. <laughs> just, just had to have it. I must, yeah. I must acquire it. I must possess it. And that's, well, you know, it's an easy trap to fall into. I'm a, I'm a book collector and I love collecting books, but, and, and a lot of them, I'll be honest, I, I don't read because I don't want to ruin them. I mean, if they're too I'm, valuable. Well, I've got a, a, a first, like just a couple of different examples, but one of them, I've got a, a first edition of Carpenter's biography that's signed by Humphrey Carpenter. Well, I'm oh, not going to read wow. that when I'm reading. You know, no. when, I, when I was preparing for the podcast, I read the digital version that I could mark up with a highlighter. Right. 
now do I, is that locked up in my hoard? Oh no, no, I'll pull that out and look at it. I'll, you know, I'll show it to somebody. I'll, I'll look at the signature and just be like, wow, you know, there was a time where this guy who met Professor Tolkien and who wrote this book signed it. And yeah, that's not the same thing as reading it and enjoying it, but it's different from, oh, I must have and put it away, but it's an easy trap to fall into, well, especially in today's world. But, but I think what you're doing with that book is you're appreciating it for what it is. Yeah. It, it, it is different from the digital copy of Carpenter's biography. Oh, there is something you smell. There's a tangibility yes, to it. I yeah. love physical books. Yeah. Th- there's something unique about it. And that's why it's important yeah. to you. It's, it's almost like <laughs> I'm going to go back to it again. You know, <laughs> the differences between the, the different, the, the, the different stories, just because they uh, have the same uh, elements doesn't make it the same story. It's right. those, it's those differences that make it worthwhile. Yeah. So uh, the fact that you're appreciating it for what it is, I think that's uh, a really, really good thing. Well, yeah, and I mean, but it's a trap that you got to be aware of, you know. I mean, and, sure. and, and I have to be aware of it too because I don't want to get to the point where I'm just like, oh, well, there's a book I want, put it on my shelf, and shelf right, and, and, and never look at it again, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, so more on on recovery, then go ahead. I want to hear some more, or do well, you have more? You want to go straight to escape? I, I actually do have one more thing on recovery. Just uh, this this idea of seeing things as we as excuse me, seeing things as we are or were meant to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like this because uh, you said it reminds you or parts of the section remind you of the Hobbit. This actually reminds me of the two towers, uh, Gandalf's words to Aragorn, uh, Legolas yes. and Gimli when he returns as the white rider. Anybody who's seen the movies or reads, read the books knows the scene. He, he shows up in Fangorn forest, mm-hmm. uh, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli think he's Saruman. Yeah. And they tell him, we thought you were Saruman. And he says, indeed, I am Saruman. One might as almost he, say yeah. Saruman as, as he, he should, should have, have been. been. Yes. And, if you know a little bit about what's happened to Gandalf when he's been, mm-hmm. let's say, dead, um, for all intents and purposes, and, and you know a little bit more about who Gandalf is and where he comes from, yep. you understand that he's actually he's gone through a purification. He's gone through a recovery of, uh, in some mm-hmm. ways, a recovery of his younger self, which I think really echoes that idea of the recovery of childish wonder. Hmm. Excellent. I, I, that's a really good insight, and I don't think that I considered that when I was reading the recovery section. But you're absolutely right. You know, yep. to see things as we are meant to, as, as we are meant to see them, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know Gandalf, uh, Gandalf's reappearance. That's a that's a great insight. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, um, thank you. It's it, it, it's a fun one, and, and again, it, there's just these these little things that just those. keep they, yeah they just keep yeah. popping up. You know, and again, the more you read, the more you find. Yeah, I mean, Tolkien really believed the things he said about literature, and he wrote a book that was. I don't want to say exactly what he wanted it to be. I'm sure, no. you know, there are things he wanted to change, obviously. We, well, yeah, we know he continually. Edited, edited yeah. incessantly. <laughs> Always. But he, he strove to write a book that did the things that he thought a good fantasy book should do. So uh, take us to Escape. Okay, well, uh, Escape, you know, this is a, a, I love this section because he once again turns words on their head. Um, you know, we talk about Escape, people who criticize fantasy literature as escapist are missing the whole concept of the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says here, and I, 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 let's take a look. I've claimed that escape is one of the main functions of fairy stories. And since I do not disapprove of them, it is plain that I do not accept the tone of scorn or pity with which escape is now so often used. He goes on to say that what the misusers of escape are fond of calling real life, escape is evidently, as a rule, very practical and may even be heroic. Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home. Or, if when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls. 
the world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. And so what he says is that these critics have chosen the wrong word. And so they're confusing, and sometimes on purpose, the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. <laughs> and so he's really that's drawing right. that yes, distinction really cool. and saying that escape is not a bad thing. Right. So when people right. call it escapist and they look down their noses at fantasy as some sort of subpar genre of literature, they're missing the point entirely. Mm-hmm. Why should we, if we are in this world that is frankly not that great, um, why should we not think of another world? If we are in jail, so to speak, as he uses in this illustration, why should we only talk about jailers and, and our concrete walls? So I, I absolutely love this. Uh, and the That's critics, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean that's it's one no it's one of my favorites as well. It, it's I, I love the fact he just turns it on its head. I think you said that. Yeah. Um, it, not even going into not even arguing that it's not escapist, just going straight to the heart of why is escape such a bad thing? It's not yeah. a bad thing at all. And uh, well, you you had something else that you wanted to say. I, I want to get to robot age in a second, but <laughs> I'll, I'll let you go first. Well, it was just it was just one other line that he really liked the um, that I really like. I should say he was criticizing the critics. And talking about how they, and here's the quote, not only do they confound the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter, they would seem to prefer the acquiescence of the quizzling to the resistance of the patriot. And again, he's, he's not quizzling, exactly... Quizzling, that, that's a good word, by the way. That is a good quizzling. word. That is a real good word. But he does, not, uh, he does not miss words when it comes to how he feels about these critics. Mm-hmm. That's for certain. Yeah, for sure. So go ahead. I want to hear yeah. what you had to say about the robot age, because he has some good things here. Well, it's it's kind of like you what you just said a moment ago, Alan. You know, um, the idea that the, you know, the the notion that you know th- this world is something that one could want to escape from. Um, mm-hmm. Tolkien, I think it's it's no surprise to anyone that Tolkien was not really a fan of progress for progress's own sake. No, um, and and that it, that was I think fairly unpopular, especially in the mid twentieth century when he was writing, um, where people were really fond of materialistic progress. Tolkien actually describes the modern age as a robot age. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the words he uses are uh, the ingenuity of means has combined Mm -hmm. with ugliness and the inferiority of result. Uh, It's it's really I I think it's a statement on the post-industrial world where everything is utilitarian and ugly and not as they don't make them like they used to. You know, it's it's (laughs) all that stuff of how the the modern age is. We've lost something. You know, I, I, I cannot stress enough that I don't think it's a pessimistic worldview. No. Uh, and we'll get to that probably. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get to that. <laughs> we'll definitely get to that. But, but it's not a pessimistic worldview at all. But it is a recognition that um, through progress and through um, technology, mm-hmm. we have sort of lost something. We, we've lost a connection to the earth, I think, is part mm-hmm. of it. Um, yeah, we've lost so. – um, you know, I, I, I suppose you could you could plug a lot of things into that equation, but definitely there's something there's something missing that Tolkien is uh, lamenting the loss of. Uh, one of the things he says in in this part is speaking about a train station, and he says, uh, "I cannot, I, I cannot to this." <laughs> oh yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, anytime he drops a reference to Norse literature, I'm going to pick up. <laughs> Not looking for the bones, but you know, uh, he says, "I cannot convince myself that the roof of Bletchley Station, which is a train station in England." is more real than the clouds. I'll skip ahead a bit to where he mm-hmm. says, the bridge to Platform 4 is, is to me less interesting than Bifrost guarded by Heimdall with the Gjallarhorn. Um, <laughs> a reference to, to Norse mythology. Yeah, and the, and boy, that one made me smile. Yeah, oh, it's so cool. 
and it's it's just it's it's more of that. Uh, it's it's the idea that you know what is it about this uh, artificial stuff that we mm-hmm. have made? What is it exactly? Tell me, why modern is that literary critic. Yeah. Why is that more real than uh, this this so called imaginary world, this mythic world of dragons and yeah. uh, and, and and Norse gods and, and bridges between worlds and yeah. hobbits, whatever. Um, yeah, he's right. And I mean, it's he, he says it himself. The notion that motor cars are more alive than, say, yeah. centaurs or dragons is curious. That they're yeah. more real than, say, horses is pathetically absurd. <laughs> right. It's it, and he's right. On its face, it seems like an absurd thing, and yet everybody seems to buy it. Well, and and remember that this was a man who fought in World War One. Yeah, yeah, we can't and, ignore that. And he even says in this section um, that he, uh, you know, I. I don't actually have the, the, the whole quote mm-hmm. in front of me, but he does say that progress is lamenting a world basically where progress means factories, machine yes. guns and bombs. Yeah. Yeah. This is fairly dark stuff, you it know, is dark stuff that he is associating with the modern world, but it's only because he's seen it. And, and yeah. as you say, you know, he, so many of his, his childhood friends, you know, his circle of friends, they all went off to world war one when they were young men. Yeah. Half the age that you and I are today, Alan. Oops, Less than half, sorry. sadly. <laughs> yeah, I, I let yeah. I let slip uh, our ages, and and he saw what happened to them, and yeah. he he was he was actually uh, he, he was what he was taken sick himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he he would have likely he would have all the red, the rest of the men in his company were uh, captured or killed in a battle right. later. Right, uh, that he would have ended up falling victim as well had he not been uh, sent home with trench fever. Right. Right. So, yeah. so having seen that, having seen World War One firsthand, having seen World War Two as it played out, you know, as a professor yeah. in Oxford, thankfully. Well, and sure. as a father whose son and, was in oh, the Royal Air Force. That's right. That's right. You're right. I forgot about that. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, having seen all this, uh, of course, he saw, uh, he saw, you know, how horrible the world could be, and um, you know, of, of course, he he understood the the need the desire to want to escape from it in a sense. Yeah. Um, so Absolutely. again, fair, you know, fairly dark. I, I hate to bring us there, but um, no, I, I think I don't it's know. necessary. Well, and, and maybe but it, but it leads to the, the, it leads to what he thinks is the, yeah. the deepest desire itself, which is the, the great escape, if you will. He calls it the escape from death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons I think we see, you know, the elves are immortal. Uh, I think there's this, this sort of desire on, in, on our part, very much like the fallen Numenorean men to achieve immortality. Um, and, and it leads him into what he talks about with uh, the consolation of the happy ending. And so we'll transition from escape to consolation, which is that there's going to be this, this happy ending. And he says that a true fairy story has to have this. Mm-hmm. Um, if tragedy is the true form of drama, that's its highest function. The opposite is true of fairy story. Fairy story has to have a happy ending. Um, but of course, happy ending is not a word that he wants to use. He needs to use something He's more precise. Not going to be happy. No, with he such is a, not such a simple phrase. Nope. Not He's create at something all. new. And he creates a beautiful word that fits perfectly. He, he creates the word and he, I'll just bring it into itself. He says, we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite. I will call it you catastrophe. The you catastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. Now he doesn't go on to explain what that means. We all, th- I think we know what a regular catastrophe is. This unexpected, horrible thing that comes and just devastates your life. A U catastrophe, he uses that prefix U, E-U, 
It stems from, it goes all the way back to uh, Evangelion, which uh, would also have trans- been translated uh, Evangelion or Good News. It, d- it dates back to, um, uh, to, the, to the gospel, to the biblical gospel. Well, and, uh, and even before, actually, it's in, well, yeah, in ancient Greek. Yeah, yeah. I just, well, of course it does. I, I didn't mean well, to say that. Well, but for Tolkien, sure. For, yeah, yeah. For I, I'm thinking in terms of like what people will uh, associate it with in modern sure. English. Sure, well, yes. No, so that's the good. word yeah. evangelism or evangel- uh, evangelize all starts with that EV, which is also EU. Right. And that's just a uh, transliteration of good news. Um, or I'm sorry, translation of good news. So here we've got good, essentially you. You catastrophe, so a good catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about what that means. Uh, and I love this. And if you'll in, you know, humor me, I'll read this next paragraph. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, that's the bad catastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance, but it denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, or good news, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy. Joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it, when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. I love that. It gives me chills every time I read it. And it makes me think of all the catastrophes that we see in The Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit uh, and in The Silmarillion even. And realizing just what he's thinking as he's putting these things together and realizing just how central these are to what a fairy tale is. If you don't have this, it's not a fairy tale. That's why... (laughs) <laughs> and we're jumping ahead again. That's why Children of Hurin isn't a fairy tale. Right. <laughs> it's a tragedy, no. folks. It's a tragedy, yeah. Uh, it yeah. does not have a you catastrophe, so it's not a fairy story in that sense, even though it is a story about fairy. Um, but yeah, well, I just, this and, is such a rich, rich passage. It is, and that's why, you know, um, dismissing the eagles as uh, a deus ex machina is, um, it's not, it's not the whole story. It's, no. you know, it is, the, it's the sudden turn. Yeah. You know, it's the, the sudden upturn and uh, it's that that makes Tolkien's worldview, Tolkien's work, uh, ultimately extremely optimistic. It yeah. It is about um, oh, always optimistic. Yeah. The, you know, if you want to call it the you know, the the sudden stroke of luck or providence or whatever you want to make it out to be. It's um, it's that happy ending that makes the story um, escapist in the best way mm-hmm. and um, and ultimately worth our time. Well, speaking of time, I, I think I hate to say this, but I think we're actually running out. We um, are probably not going to be able to get to Mythopoeia. I think we're going to have to actually do a, maybe a short episode next week. Um, I think that's a good idea. You know, so we're going to we're just going to go ahead and have to wrap this first one up. Our plan is to keep these podcasts between an hour and an hour 15. Uh, and we're going to try to release them on a monthly basis going forward. Uh, if there are enough of you out there and you're really interested, we are considering moving up to an episode every two weeks, but we still have some kinks to work out, some technical things, and obviously there is the schedule thing. I mean, we're each 
you know, we both are, are dads with young kids, and sometimes mm-hmm. that makes it a little hard to do these things. But I think it's it would be good. I, I, I like the idea of doing special episodes from time to mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the idea of doing Mythopoeia again soon, maybe just a, a short little one-off episode. Oh, yeah. uh, in April, the story of Kulervo is coming out in the United States. Yeah. Uh, maybe Probably we can do, do a special episode for that, definitely. Yeah, maybe we can do something that. Uh, it, maybe if we can secure a guest for an interview episode, maybe we can do something like that. Well, that'd be great. Um, but uh, so, I think Christopher uh, Tolkien's probably busy. What do you think? He he might he might be a little bit busy. Um, <laughs> but for now, well, so we're we're looking at you know hopefully doing a, a short on Mythopoeia soon. But then uh, where are we going next after that? Well, you know, like we mentioned in our teaser a couple of weeks ago, we're we're planning to do a chronological walkthrough of Tolkien's works. Uh, so that means and chronological, not published order. That means we're going to start with the Silmarillion. That's I know that's a bit heavy. It can be daunting for a first-time reader, but we're only going to do a chapter an episode, so the pace is something that everybody can handle. Uh, we chose to do chronological order rather than published because there are some themes that we first see in the Silmarillion that get really fleshed out when we come across them again in the later works. Uh, I'm thinking, if nothing else, thinking of pride. Uh, yep. We'll start to see things... I think we'll see things better in the in the Lord of the Rings if we've read the Silmarillion so. first. I think so. There's, there's a lot of things about... Um, Nobility mm-hmm. and fall, uh, yes. and um, you said pride. I, I hate to go down the fate road, but you know there's oh, some well, of that we, in there too. We will be talking about fate and, and free will and all of that. Absolutely, for, absolutely. <laughs> I think so, I, um, I, I owe our group a treatise on fate, fate and free will in the life of Turin Durambar. Yeah, yeah you, you owe me that. <laughs> Sir, I will, I will definitely read it. Oh um, man! So yeah, I think there's just I think it's really going to enlighten the later the later mm-hmm. chronologically works the the works of the third age uh, if we go to the first age first and plus you know uh, we're word nerds and the Silmarillion uh, is yes. full of uh, oh, fun words in English and otherwise that we can sort of flex our muscles with chock full. So join us next time when we will be discussing the music of the Einar, the Einarlindale, and be sure to check out our website theprancingponypodcast.com. Go to our library. Follow our links to Amazon where you can pick up those affordable paperback copies that we've talked about. Mark them up. Notes, highlighters. Your next read will be more enjoyable because you'll have those notes there. Keep those special editions in great shape. Mark up the cheap ones. That's right. And also, please like us on Facebook. Uh, You can search for The Prancing Pony Podcast. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Prancing Pony Pod. You can also subscribe to our podcast through the RSS feed on our website or through iTunes or the Stitcher app for Android users. And Also, if you're an iTunes user, please take a moment to review us on iTunes. We really appreciate that. Definitely, please. It would mean a great deal to us. And don't forget to send us your questions, comments, or herbore from Buckland at theprancingponypodcast at gmail.com. And we'll read them on our next episode. Well, an hour and 15 minutes is far too short a time to spend amongst such admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. Farewell.